The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm, uh, I'll be preaching as uh, we preach every Sunday from the Christian Standard Bible. So if you've got some piece of technological witchcraft that you use to look it up, that's the version that you'll want. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is the best, isn't it? Isn't love awesome? The desire for it, the the need for it, has been around from the very beginning. It it, it is a a, a deep-seated, implanted, embedded craving in us that God put there. It's it's been around um, forever. God in His Trinitarian self, who is love, the Father loving the Son, and the Father loving the Spirit, and the Son loving the Father, and the Son loving the Spirit, and so on and so forth. Love has always existed. We, we sense that, that deeper pull, that deeper resonance whenever we think about love. When God created Adam, he created Adam to know intimately the divine love of God himself. And then God decided that this love needed even more enjoyment. And so he created a companion for man. And the very first recorded words from a human being, is a love song. Adam sees Eve, do you remember? And the first thing out of his mouth, it's poetry. At last. You could almost hear Etta James in the background. At last. Love is the greatest. But ever since the fall, when when sin entered our hearts and, and the world around us, the way that we understand love often isn't the greatest. So, We grasp and we fumble and we stagger. We're searching for love. I've been listening um, to the 50s station on the radio. I'm still a radio guy. I don't know, maybe that's dating me. Um, And I love 50s music. And just this morning, all all the love songs. Why do fools fall in love? Why do fools fall? It's, It's as natural as birds chirping that fools would fall in love. We're never quite able to satisfy the love craving in ourselves. And even our deepest professions of love end up betraying our ignorance. Consider the passage today, 1 Corinthians 13. It's one of the most famous passages of of Scripture. It's up there with John 3.16 and little portions of Sermon on the Mount, right? 1 Corinthians 13 is to weddings what amazing grace is to funerals. Which is to say, even people who don't know God or profess faith in Christ when they want their wedding ceremonies to have some kind of whiff of religion in them, you go to the love passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You have heard it in so many weddings in front of couples who have no idea what they're talking about. It's gushy and it's mushy and it's light and fluffy, and they really have no idea the bar that is being set, what love actually is. Sometimes I think ministers officiating weddings should just spend a lot of time saying, are you sure? Like, are you really sure? Because 1 Corinthians 13 isn't rainbows and puppy dogs. In his book, What Did You Expect, um, which is a great title for a marriage book, by the way, <laughs> What Did You Expect? Paul, <laughs> Paul Tripp writes this. He said, I performed the marriage, so I got the call. 
It is almost always made by the wife, and she is calling because she has actually been forced to face what somewhere in the recesses of her mind she knew to be true. She and her husband are sinners. The call is usually made a few days or weeks after the honeymoon. On the honeymoon, the self-orientation of sin is overshadowed by exotic cuisine and, and gorgeous sights. But when the couple returns to real, everyday life, minus these distractions, they are forced to face who they really are and what their marriage is actually about. Sarah called me at 6.30 a.m. the day after the ceremony. <laughs> I picked up the phone to these two words, it's over. I knew it wasn't over. In fact, I was happy that she was making the call so soon. Sarah and Ben were the smart kids in class. They had gotten to the end of themselves quickly. The invitation to love is an invitation to die to yourself and to live for the good of others. And this kind of life, of course, has so much more to do than with marriage. The gospel of Jesus Christ affects all of our relationships, or it ought to. And when you do relationships with anyone for any length of time, you see that you can't not be in a relationship with a sinner. And neither can they. But when the grace of God changes us, it can't help but overflow out of us and extend to others. And we find that we do all of our relationships through the love of God. And when you do relationships through the love of God, you learn over and over again that love has a lot less to do with feelings and a lot more to do with forgiveness. I'll say that again. Love has a lot less to do with feelings and a lot more to do with forgiveness. Real love, as God intends it, is meant as both a gift to be enjoyed and as a glory to be reflected on His Son, Christ Jesus. So let's begin reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I, were, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, as you may well know, is writing to a very messy church. The Corinthians are fractured by division, they're fraught with immorality. So in chapters 1 through 12, he's reminding them of the gospel, 
And then he's working through various theological and practical issues with them, applying the gospel along the way to each of these sort of um, applicational subjects that are taking place in their context. He's addressing their division. He teaches them about wisdom. He rebukes their immorality. He instructs them on church discipline. He talks about uh, marriage and divorce and all that sort of thing. He talks about lawsuits. He talks about Christian liberty. He teaches them about spiritual gifts. And then at the end of chapter 12, he talks about the unique nature of the church body, which then gives way to this beautiful passage on love. All of the stuff that came before, all of those various subjects and issues, all culminating in this excursus on love. And the form of this passage is really interesting, too. Paul places his description of love, which is found in verses 4 through 6, between two kind of interesting theological bookends. Each of these clarifies the why of love and really the the what of love. What is love? The first bookend, verses 1 through 3, is Paul's way of culminating everything he said to the Corinthian church thus far, chapters 1 through 12, with what matters most. He's saying that even if you get chapters 1 through 12 right, your behavior is well-managed, your worship is orderly, and so on and so forth. If, if your heart isn't tuned to the music of the gospel, it will all be wasted. We know who real Christians are, Jesus says, by what? Their love. John 13, 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is, in fact, the highest good. And that's my first point for you this morning. Three things I want to share with you from 1 Corinthians 13 about love. And the first is this. Love is the highest good. And by good, I I mean both virtue and possession. Love is the highest virtue. It adorns and grounds every other virtue. Peace, contentment, joy, even moral purity It grounds all of those in the essence of God's character. God is love. And love is also the greatest possession. And you know this. You feel this in your bones. I don't need to convince you of this very much because you just know experientially as much as you can experience and accumulate, as many accolades as you can receive, as much pleasure and money and stuff, it all feels empty, doesn't it, when you don't feel loved or when there's not someone for you to love. And I don't just mean romantically. We feel empty when we don't feel loved by our parents or by our siblings or by our friends or anybody else. We don't feel loved by our church. Why is this the the ache, the gnaw inside of us despite everything else can be going wonderfully? It's because love is the highest good. Paul writes, If I have the gift of prophecy, verse 2, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have everything, and I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. It doesn't matter if you're the smartest man or woman in the room. If you know more Bible verses. If you've served in the church the longest. If you give the most money if you read the most books, if you behave the most morally, if you do not pursue the highest good, you're wasting your time. The Pharisees had impeccable exteriors. But inside, spiritually, 
They were rotting corpses. In Galatians 5, Paul lists love as the first of the fruit of the Spirit. And when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Of all the commandments, he says, love God, and very closely second is, love your neighbor. The love of God is more precious than any other experience. As a virtue, it is unrivaled. As a possession, it will not rust or decay. The love of God is the one thing you cannot lose. Secondly, love most glorifies Jesus. Love most glorifies Jesus. It most glorifies Jesus because like Jesus, true love is others-oriented. It is self-denying. It is sacrificial. It is dedicated to the good of others. You know these famous verses, 4 through 6, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not seeking its own way, it's not irritable, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. This is a very high bar, and it's not what Hollywood or pop music, or the internet says love is. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Let's just let's fixate on that for a minute. The idea here is the kind of like, you know, storing up grievances, sort of keeping score. Have you ever been in, in, in the argument time machine? Maybe some of you immediately know what I'm talking about. Let me describe it with a little illustration, maybe... You've experienced the argument time machine. You're arguing with someone that you love about one thing that just happened, but you end up in another time in another place. If I told you once, I told you a thousand times, put your dishes in the sink. Don't just leave them lying around. Okay, all right, I, I hear you. You say you hear me, but you obviously aren't listening. You never listen, or you wouldn't have done it. You're so thoughtless and inconsiderate. You never listen to what I tell you. Just like when I told you not to take on that roofing job because you weren't going to get paid on time. Hold on, hold, time out. I thought we were talking about the dishes. Now we're up on the roof somehow. Do you see what happened? You're in the argument time machine. It started out about one thing and then it grew because it's not really about the dishes. It's about not listening or, or it's about being inconsiderate. And once it's about those things, it becomes about all the things. The room is very quiet right now. You think you're in the kitchen talking about dirty dishes, but you find yourself on a museum tour of all the times that you didn't listen. You find yourself on the roof two months ago, or wherever it is, the storehouse of grievances saved just for this moment. Now, love would mean listening and being considerate and remembering the dishes go in the sink. <laughs> love would also mean not turning a momentary irritation into a catalog of sins recorded and saved up. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't keep a record like that. Love certainly doesn't bring the record out to win arguments or to make a case. 
If you're serious about Christ being magnified in your life, if you're serious about real, gospel-rich love, you must be more interested in loving than in winning. What does it mean to rejoice with the truth, as Paul says? In, in moments like these, even. The truth is, he didn't put the dishes in the sink. That's the truth. Well, if you're not keeping a, a record of wrongs, if you're not using someone's sins to celebrate your goodness over theirs and make them feel like the worst person on the face of the earth, what does it mean to rejoice with the truth instead? Maybe it means looking for things to praise in this miserable sinner that you just happen to be in a relationship with. Maybe it means remembering that none of us measures up to God's holy standard. And yet he does not hold that against us. He rejoices over us. He treasures us because of his great love. And the way that we regard each other can either magnify ourselves in self-righteousness or it can magnify Christ in our giving grace, in our giving forgiveness, in our giving encouragement. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy because we want this rotten, no-good sinner who's lucky to be in a relationship with us to shape up and get their act together. And we forget that the best motivation to change is not conviction, but encouragement. Grace has a power to change us that the law doesn't have. Christ did not come to condemn. Remember, John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Love is the greatest because love most magnifies Christ. Love most magnifies Christ the way the gospel most magnifies Christ, even more than the law. And because love most magnifies Christ, we see thirdly and finally, love will endure forever. Love will endure forever. Do you know what echoes in eternity? Not your stuff. Not your good intentions. Not your aspirations or your ambitions. It's love. God's love cannot be taken from you and your love is never a waste. Even if it feels wasted here, it is an investment in heaven. Sometimes it seems so disordered, so imbalanced, so unfair. The love being poured out is not being reciprocated. It's not being matched. You're loving someone who is not effectively loving you back. And this is how you know if you're really loving them. Are you willing to keep going? Is your love contingent on the response? Paul says, verse 7, love bears all things. This is a hard text. We want the loopholes. We want the nuance. Paul says, unabashedly, love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. You jump down to verse 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love is carrying a lot of weight in these statements. And our flimsy notions of love, our sentimental love, our self-centered love, cannot support what we see here. The love Paul is talking about is real love. It is love with deep roots in the ground of God's steadfast love and kindness. 
Love is the greatest where it is grounded in the gospel. One day Peter came to Jesus. Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? And he thinks he's being generous. (laughs) And Jesus says, 70 times seven. Peter gets out his calculator. So 490, that's what you're saying. No, Symbolically, what Jesus is saying is, you don't stop. Forever. It, love doesn't end. Now, Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. He knows that our capacity for love and forgiveness is finite. So how can he call us to persevere in these things toward others? when he knows how frail and feeble we are? And the short answer, I think, is this. It's because God himself perseveres in them toward us. There's not a morning where the son says to the father, how many times do I got to forgive these people? They're doing the same thing every day. I told them a thousand times, spiritually speaking, the dishes go in the sink. No, that doesn't happen. You wake up into his forbearance, into his grace. Jesus goes on to tell Peter a story about a servant who was forgiven a huge debt by his master. And the servant goes on then to punish a third party who owes the servant a lot less than he had owed his master. And when the master finds out, he has the debt-pardoned servant thrown in jail and tortured. And Jesus says, and this is the scary part, That's what will happen to us if, spurning the grace given to us by God in Christ at the cross and out of the empty tomb, we withhold grace from others. Because God's love toward us is relentlessly patient in its eternal perseverance. We have no Christian right to say to someone who has wronged us, even if they continue to wrong us, you have reached your limit with me. My love for you stops now. Doing so fails to truly see the depths of our own sin in the light of God's holiness. And if God, who is perfect and holy, will forgive and love, who are we, who are most certainly not perfect and holy, to be unforgiving and unloving to others? And when we realize how much we've been forgiven, the verse, love never ends, makes a lot more sense. This doesn't mean that you submit to being victimized, someone is... um, an abuser. It doesn't mean that you don't pursue justice when wronged, but it does mean foregoing vengeance. It does mean seeking the good of the other person. And when we realize how much we've been forgiven, it gets a little more, I mean, it's supernatural, but it comes a little more natural. When you're tuned to the gospel, it begins to affect the way that you speak and act and react. Now, we need faith in God, to see the logic of this. Because this makes no sense to the mind that doesn't know Christ. And we need a sure hope that God's going to sort it out. How how can I forgive you and forego vengeance unless I believe Christ is on the throne, He's going to sort it out. When I get to the end, I won't feel the unfairness like I do now. 
He is just and He can be trusted. So I have a sure hope He's going to sort everything out the way it ought to be sorted. Faith and hope will take us all the way to the day that love conquers everything and everything sad becomes untrue. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now I wondered about this. I've thought about this a long time. And I I could be wrong. The, The theologians in the room can sort me out later. I think... Part of what Paul is saying here is this. Faith isn't needed in the new heavens and the new earth because faith is the conviction of things not seen. And in verse 12, he's pointing to the day where our faith becomes sight. We will finally see. We will see him. So we won't need faith anymore. We'll have the fullness of sight. And our hope will be fulfilled then too. Christ is the blessed hope. His return is our blessed hope. That hope, that that longing, it will be fulfilled then because we will finally have Christ. So we won't need faith and hope in heaven. We need them to get there, of course, but not after. But love, we'll keep loving forever. Love will never end. It is the greatest Because God is love. And God expresses His love most deeply by sending His Son. Real love magnifies Christ. This is what John says, 1 John 4, verses 9-11. through In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We don't wake up knowing what love is. We have to orient ourselves towards it. We think of love purely in self-satisfying ways. You, you complete me. We think it looks like sunshine and rainbows and blooming flowers, and of course, in a way it does, but true love really looks like death. It looks like death on a cross. And on the cross, we see the depths of God's love for sinners, for people who couldn't get their act together, who wouldn't. And His Son died for them. And so we see how Jesus Himself perfectly manifests 1 Corinthians' love to us. This is not just a portrait of you and me loving rightly. We we cannot do this perfectly. It's impossible for us, this side of the veil. And so we ought to see this love as a picture of the Son of God, who is love Himself. Jesus is patient and kind. He's not envious or boastful. He's not arrogant or rude. Jesus did not insist on His own way, but following His Father's will, He left the glory of heaven to empty Himself and serve us and sacrifice Himself for us. Jesus isn't irritable or resentful. And Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. That He might rejoice over us in our sins and our failings. For He's forgiven us all of our trespasses. He's thrown our sins into the depths of the sea to remember them no more. And He has justified us forever. Jesus rejoices with the truth of His grace that declares us righteous. So that in Jesus we can bear all things. Believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. Because Jesus 
never ends. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for as much as everything is changing in the world, even in, in this church, what you have providentially ordered for us takes us by surprise. You, you keep us on our heels very well. And yet your love never changes. You yourself never change. There is no shadow of turning with you. What an anchor. What a rock. What a solid, grounding, joy-giving truth it is to know you and be loved by you. Father, help us to reflect that in, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, certainly in our church. That others might be drawn to faith because of our great love for each other. We know that we love because you first loved us, and so we thank you for the gift of your Son. And it's his, in his name we pray these things. Amen.